My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you. Um, the movie Ugly Dolls did really badly in the um, box office. I spent a bunch of money on it, but it hardly made any money. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, how many of you, parents, maybe those of you with little children, saw Ugly Dolls? How many of you without children saw Ugly Dolls? Come on. Come on. Tell the truth. No? Ugly Dolls is a story of... Um, this unseen world, world where dolls are manufactured, but, but where some of the dolls are, you know, once they're like, don't come out just right, uh, get kind of pushed aside and get thrown into this special place called Uglyville. They don't get paired with the humans that they were made for, and so they get sent to Uglyville. Now, I don't seem to know what's going on in Uglyville, and of course the protagonist, uh, Moxie, the main character, leads a little band, a little team to go fulfill their purpose, to go find out what it looks like, how do they get to the big world. And they find themselves climbing, and they arrive at this place called the Institute of Perfection, uh, where they are told that they are ugly. And that their ugliness makes them void of purpose and void of love. I hear this from Lou, the Institute's director. He is in charge of all that is. Now, the adventures ensue, and it comes out. They end up finding a way to do some creative things, and they move forward because, you know, it's an animated picture. And so, of course, there's a, there's a great narrative, great adventures, great feats to be overcome. And at the end... Everyone comes to see that it is actually their imperfections that makes them special, that makes them valuable, that makes them lovable. That's the theme of the film. It's actually it's your imperfections that make you lovable. Now, you can hear the theme. This is actually where I heard the theme of this uh, movie for the first time when Becky and I were watching The, Vo the, the Vox, The Voice, um, a couple, about a year ago or so, and, and Kelly Clarkson performed her theme song to this movie. Now, what I'll do is just as a cultural articulation of, like, this is some of what's at play in our world. This is what we're thinking about. This is how we work. Uh, let's go ahead and look at a couple of the lyrics. I want to take a, just a little exegete of this particular. Here the, here's the lyrics from, from the song that uh, she sings. It's called um, I'm Broken and It's Beautiful. Um, so here's what it starts. She says, uh, I know I'm superwoman. I know I'm strong. I know I've got this because I've had it all along. I'm phenomenal. I'm enough. I don't need you to tell me who to be. Can someone just hold me? Don't fix me. Don't, don't try to change things. Can someone just know me? Because underneath, I'm broken, and it's beautiful. Leave that up here. One of the reasons why I found this fascinating, I remember hearing the song at the beginning, and I was like, wait, wait what is she saying at the end there? Because then it goes on the refrain, right? I'm broken, and it's beautiful. I'm broken, and it's beautiful. I'm broken, and it's beautiful. And it's like, it sounds like a good theme. It seems like the fitting thing. It's like, yeah, I'm broken, and it's beautiful. But there's really two fundamental competing narratives here. Neither one of them, unfortunately, is a gospel narrative, but there's two competing narratives, and honestly, they're the competing narratives of our day. And, and by the way, good news, we're, one of a, we're all falling into one of these more than the other, no doubt about it. There's the, first, there's the traditional kind of, uh, you know, meritocracy, kind of religious, if you will, uh, narrative, that I made it so I'm beautiful. Yeah, go ahead and keep this up here. I want this up here while I'm talking. Um, I made it so I'm beautiful, right? I, I, may have, I may have been broken and insufficient at a time, but, but, but I've, I've worked my way. I've worked really, really hard like crazy to make myself beautiful, and now I am. But I've accomplished has made me beautiful. Now I am. 
I've lived up to who I was told I was supposed to be by my family, by myself, by my general cultural context. And now I know that I matter, that I'm, that I'm loved. I've succeeded and so I'm acceptable. I've made myself unbroken. I've fixed me and now I'm beautiful. That's narrative number one. You can kind of see it here. I am Superwoman. If you know anything about Kelly Clarkson, like that girl can do a lot of stuff, right? I, I know I'm strong. I know I've, I, I, I got this. And also like, now that I've got this, like you don't get to tell me how it's gonna be. Like I decide, because I'm successful. I've, I've achieved, the meritocracy has worked. There's another competing narrative. And by the way, these are like kind of swollen, swore, like they're like together. They've mixed with each other at this point. And that is more of a kind of a postmodern, post-enlightenment, relativistic, self-actualization, kind of irreligious, right? And it says, I'm broken and it's beautiful. What is broken is what makes me beautiful. It's what makes me special. I'm, I'm redeemed by embracing what makes me unique. That's what makes me well. I, I, I'm embracing that which makes me broken. So my brokenness, whether it's my victimization from other people or, or things that I've maybe unfortunately contributed to, or, or maybe it's just the, the dynamics of a, of, a, of a social and economic system or of a religious construction, my, my brokenness is now my identity. So don't change a thing. Don't fix me. Just, just know me and love me. Hold me as I am. I'm acceptable. I'm free just as I am because I have accepted myself. That's the other narrative. I don't have to live up to something because I am the something. I have to become. It's not a meritocracy. It's just a, I get to be me, and you accepting me is up to you, but I've accepted me, and all is well with me. Now, what does ugly dolls have anything to do with the passage we just read? Well, I think that the very same thing that can free us from our current cultural narratives, because both of those are playing themselves out in our hearts, whether we like it or not, whether we think they are or not. And by the way, most likely, if one of those is more dominant in your heart, you're looking at the other people going like, what is wrong with you? And it goes both ways. Why are you trying so hard? Just be you. What do you mean just be you? Look, have you seen you? Like, become something, right? You hear it? Some of it even has, it's been politicized. Some of those things are getting politicized, although they actually play on both sides of the aisle. Those are some of the main cultural narratives that we live in. And so what does the gospel say to that? And I think that actually the very thing that we see in this passage this morning invites us, invites us into the very freedom that we get to experience and see in David at the end of the passage. And that's the freedom I long for all of us to live by, certainly the freedom I long for myself. And so we're going to look at uh, three parts. The, the, arc, the arc of holiness with Uzzah. We're going to look at the arc, arc of grace with Obed-Edom. And look, look at what a freed worshiper looks like and a freed heart for us. So the arc of holiness. Um, this story of Uzzah is um, it's rough. I mean, you have to... Um, you have to remember, David has just taken over the throne, right? He's finally king over all of Israel. Basically, there isn't any account of him doing a whole lot other than defeating the Philistines at this point, other than this. This is the first thing he does in his reign. 
Seven years in, he takes over all of Israel and he says, you know what? I've now built for myself, I've taken over Jerusalem, right? This is going to be the city of David. This is going to be where, where the capital of our new nation is going to reside. And I'm going to bring now the ark here, the presence of the Lord. Now the ark, for those of you who remember, is, is that box that was built back in our reading. You remember back in Exodus, Leviticus, when we were building, Leviticus, when we were building that box? That, that box was just a, inlaid with gold, suddenly became more than a box. It became the very presence of the Lord. The Lord said, I'm going to come down. I'm going to dwell right there where the ark is in the Holy of Holies. That's where my presence will be. And it'll be, remember we talked about that? It'll be among you. And so what David's doing is he's saying, hold on. I want this capital to be the capital of our political city, of our political country. But I, but I want the, the presence of the Lord to be in this place too. He longs for the presence and the centrality of God to be the God of of his people, and so he goes and and he gets this this ark, and it is a celebration. It'd been years. I mean, like depending on who you read, somewhere between twenty and a hundred years since the ark had been where it should have been with anybody. It was over in Kiriath Jerim for a long time, is all we know. So maybe sixty years. Let's just say that sixty years. It has not been where the tabernacle was. It's been hanging out down there after it was stolen by the Philistines. And David goes and gets it. And there's a whole bunch of people, and there's liars, and there's and there's castanets. We don't have castanets up here, but they have them, and they're using all kinds. I mean, it's a big, huge celebration, and everything comes to a halt suddenly, tragically, as Uzzah reaches out and grabs the ark. Now, to understand, right? There's this. The ark's been put on this um, on this brand new cart. It's a new cart, right? You should always have a new cart if you're going to carry the, the ark of the Lord, right? He reaches out. Because one of the ox stumbles, he touches the ark, and boom, he dies. And everything stops. I thought about that. Imagine if we were doing a, if we were doing a baptism service, like right now, and like the person getting in to baptize like suddenly fell over dead because of the judgment of the Lord. That would ruin the worship service, right? We'd be like, what do we do now? We'll come back next week, okay? You know, like, everybody, let's go ahead and clear out. seems like that's what happens. Everyone takes a step back. It's like, okay, the, let's all take a step back from this ark. What's going on here? Seems like we might think, okay, isn't this a bit excessive? I mean, us as a young guy, maybe, like, he's, like, in charge of, like, youth ministry or something. He's, he's been around the ark for a long time, so it's not like he's new to it. Did he just break a rule? It was just that. He just break one of the rules, and like so he got smitten, which means, oh my goodness, what does this mean? What's happening here? One of the things we have to remember, and this goes all the way back to when we were talking about the law and why God established the law, is that he established the law and all the little rules about how do you worship and how do you approach the Lord and what do you do with the Ark of the Covenant? All of those were to be a manifestation of who God is, right? They were a living message in activity form of what God is like. Not just that he is present, but that he is holy. But not just that he is holy, but that he's present. That he's holy and that he's present. He has made a way to be among his people. 
That was supposed to be the declaration to the nations. That's what Israel is supposed to tell. We have a God, and you can know him, but he is holy. So is God just being precocious here? Here's the thing. I think naturally we go to, well, it, it, it should have, shouldn't he give it, couldn't there be a talking to? And what we experience here, we have, to, we have to take a full step back in order to realize that God strikes Uzzah because Uzzah had lost sight of who God was. Uzzah was, Uzzah believed that the dirt on the ground, if the ark fell, would be the thing that made the ark unclean. He had lost sight of the message of the Old Testament that comes clearly to the people of Israel, and that is that I am holy and you are not. And you, and you can't approach me, and that there's, there's such an incredible chasm, there's such a, a difference between the two of us now, I have come and made myself present with you, but, but do not lose sight of the fact that you cannot cross this chasm. There's no amount of merit. There's no amount of trying. There's no amount of goodness that will ever get you there. You cannot bear my presence. That no amount of good worshiping going on around the ark, that no amount of goodwill about bringing the ark to, a root, to, to Jerusalem was going to cover for it. God used in the death of Uzzah a visual illustration of the fundamental principle that sin separates us from God. He's used that illustration multiple times as we've already read through the, the first several books. Of the, and once again here at the beginning of David's kingdom, this vivid picture of sin separates us from God. And the chasm is so great that a little bit of worship, a little bit of giving to the church, a little bit of kind of doing the right thing is nowhere even near. Even a lot of it, it doesn't, it doesn't do the work. You can't merit your way there. You can't earn your way there. Our sin separates us from him. It's not just a little bit of defilement. It's a massive gap. God is showing us what he's showing David is no amount of good works, no amount of effort on your part, no amount of good intentions can bridge the reality of my holiness and, and your sinfulness. This is the bad news of the gospel. And it's the first thing that David has to get confronted with if he's ever going to be the man at the end of the chapter. He has to be confronted with the reality that no amount of good works are going to make. And by the way, if you're like, hey, it seemed like that's just unfair. All the, a bunch of rules have been broken at this point. We're talking about this one rule. Like God's already overlooked the fact that the, you're not supposed to put the ark on, the, on, a, on a cart. You're supposed to carry it, right? It's supposed to be carried by Levites and Levites only. It's supposed to be covered. It doesn't look like it's covered. Like all, there's all kinds of rules that are being broken here. And, and God chooses this one to teach and to make a point, a significant point for David and for the nation that is going to follow him. I am holy, and your sin separates you from me in a, in, with such a gap, such a chasm that no amount of goodwill, no amount of effort 
will ever get you there. And as a lost sight of that, it says that David's response is that in verse 9, it says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he says, listen to what he says, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He doesn't say, I must have like not followed some of the rules. Let me, let me go find out what some of the rules were and see if we can kind of fix that, and we'll just we'll do this again. He, he comes to realize in the magnitude of what unfolds on in front of him exactly what the Lord was trying to show him and all those that were around him, that the lyre and the harp were not going to do it. He says, how can the ark come to me? Like, there is no way. There is no way. It must be away from me. And he was angry. It says, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And all, all, pretty much every commentator is like, he wasn't, David wasn't angry at Uzzah. And then David wasn't angry at the Lord. He was angry with David. And I, if I look at my own life, and honestly, if I look at the way in which I've experienced many of your lives as we've walked through difficult times, is is that God uses these kinds of things, these, these disaster catastrophe type things in our lives to remind us, to show us the reality that that's what's actually at play. There is this great chasm that he is the Lord and no other. It reminds us that we're worse than we thought, that we're weaker than we thought, that we're more broken than we had any idea of, and that we're more unacceptable than we thought. And if we're ever going to be free people, those things have to come home to us first. Trying hard to make ourselves acceptable. And then God, by his grace, brings us face to face with the reality that we are not. Left to ourselves, we are not. That something else has to happen to bridge that gap. And candidly, this confronts straight on the reality of broken and it's beautiful. God would say is that, listen, if you want to know the presence, if you want to know ultimate reality, like your brokenness doesn't make you beautiful, your brokenness must be redeemed if you're ever going to be able to have a relationship with me. And, and I am life itself. I am, I, am, I am life itself. It confronts our best efforts. Our best efforts won't do it. But then we see the Ark of Grace. Obed-Edom inherits the Ark. Now, we don't know a ton about Obed-Edom other than he's a Gittite. And honestly, commentators are kind of split on this too. Either he was a Gittite, which means he was from Gath, which means he was a Philistine Gentile, or he's a guy who lived in Gath who was maybe a Levite. But here's the thing. He got something he didn't want. He got the thing that all of Israel was like, let's just leave it here. I just imagine the scene where everyone took a step, step back from the ark, everything went quiet, people started going home, and Dave was like, all right, let's just roll this thing into this guy's barn. And I'm the king, so you're going to have to keep it for a bit. We're not sure what to do with it, and, and, and so he inherits it. And 
what does God do? What, what does David end up seeing God doing? And God made sure that he saw what he did. It says in verse 11, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedidim, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obedidim and all his household. He, he, he blessed him. Why? For, for no reason. There's, there's no indication of anything he did. He just receives the grace of God. The, the abundance from the Lord. Now, especially if he's actually a Philistine or, or, or a descendant of the Philistines, that, that what God's communicating to David is, you're too afraid to be around this thing because I am holy and it is that real and this does indeed separate you this much. But I can be here with a foreigner, a non-Israelite, and I can bless him. Because if there's ever going to be a bridging of that chasm, it's going to have to come from me. It's going to have to come from my, my side. It reminds us that God wants fellowship. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be a blessing that we would be a blessing. He's telling David... I prospered Obed-Edom. And I long to be a blessing to you. I long to be in your presence and have you be in my presence in a way that allows you to know me. And so David encounters another narrative. A gospel narrative. Not that I'm broken and it's beautiful. Not that I made it and so, I'm no, and so now I'm beautiful, but I'm I'm broken hopelessly sinful and I've been made beautiful by grace by the beauty of another so maybe you're like David this morning and you're someone who even with your best efforts like you know you're like honestly let's just get God away like you've you take tally of the reality of what you've chosen over the years or recently, and you're like, I, I know I cannot be in the presence. I wouldn't reach out. I know better. God's grace says, I show grace and mercy upon those that will humble themselves. And that's precisely what we see in David. As David finds himself freed to worship, his heart is impacted. We see a different David on the other side of this three months than we saw originally. Here's what we hear first. First, we hear his confession. He did his homework. First Chronicles uh, chapter 15, which captures this event um, in Chronicles, says that David said to them, that's the Levites, he gathers some Levites and say, you are the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord, our God, broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Again, 
not just the rule, the rule being the manifestation of who he is. God broke out against him because we didn't realize that he was holy and gracious, that he was sacred and present. And so you hear David just confesses. And his confession is active. He, he seeks out Levites, who are the ones who are supposed to carry it. He, he seeks out Levites to carry it. He doesn't go for a new cart again. David didn't know the law. The king of Israel didn't know the way of the Lord, and, and now he does. And he comes back and says, we're going to do this in accordance with who God is. The Lord blesses him. But more than just a, con a confession, David moves towards atonement. Look what it says in verse 13. It says, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he, that is David, sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. See, what David came to, came to get a hold of is that that chasm that he experienced when Uzzah fell dead next to the ark can only be bridged, can only be brought across, can only be moved by sacrifice. If you remember, on top of the ark, there was this thing called the mercy seat, golden plate, and it said this is where the Lord dwelled. The, the glory of the Lord dwelt there. And once a year, if you remember, the ark being in the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go and, and he would be heading into the Holy of Holies to go in once a year. And what did he do first? In order to get to the Holy of Holies, he had to walk straight up to the altar. And there he killed two animals. He sacrificed two animals. And they were burnt offerings, which means you burn the whole thing. Nothing is left. And you sprinkle the blood along the sides. You take some of, the, the, some of that blood and you walk. You walk into the Holy of Holies and you put some on the mercy seat. And that... That alone makes atonement for Israel. And we've said before, not, not, the blood didn't do anything. The, the blood itself was what God used. It was his declaration to say, I'm going to declare this the way in which I'm going to rescue you. And by your faith in this way, I'm going to invite you into relationship with me. And that blood was just a foreshadowing, of course, of the blood that would come in Jesus. And so that blood is the blood of Jesus applied to those people. And so what God's saying, what David is saying, as, as they begin this journey with the ark, with the presence of the Lord, is we go no further until we've had sacrifice. The only way we move into the presence of the Lord or invite the presence of the Lord is through confession and sacrifice. The blood would be put on the mercy seat, and God would have mercy. God is more holy and more gracious, and David saw it, and that made him worship. And he worships. I mean, this is, this is a scene that, honestly, probably, like some charismatic churches, if you grew up in the charismatic churches, have used to say, this is what real worship looks like. Dancing around. And David, it says, danced to the Lord. Now, you know, we haven't been a big dancing church so far. We can't get half of y'all to even raise your hands. So we're not really worried about the dancing breaking out anytime soon. But nonetheless, the reality of this picture is David is fully self-abandoned. He gives his whole self to it. His body, his mind, his soul, like, it's all involved. He's dressed appropriately in the sense that he's dressed like a common priest. The ephod, the linen ephod, he's just an ordinary guy out there at this point. 
He gives his whole, his, his whole self. What does it say here? It says in verse, um, in verse 14, it says that David danced before the Lord with all his might. I love that. Like, with all his might. Like, like his strength was in it. Like he was that jubilant over the reality of both the holiness and the presence of the Lord. He's giving all of himself to it. He's even giving his stuff. Like, we're talking thousands upon thousands of people. And David prepares bread and these special cakes that no commentator knows what in the world they are. They're maybe date cakes, but they're like delicacies. And he hands them out to everyone, not just the heads of tribes, not just the heads of households. Men and women, it says. Everyone. We must celebrate. This is the reality of what David came to encounter. The, the angry and afraid David returns three months later and says, everyone's welcome. The presence of the Lord is with us. We must dance. And he gives himself with abandon to the presence of the Lord. Leaping and dancing, it says. He worships with his whole heart. And what's maybe one of the most beautiful things is, is the manifestation of that is, is a life of self-forgetfulness. This, David is not conscious of self. David exhibits what is some pretty unbelievable humility, which is consistent with him across the board. This is what it means when you understand the reality of both the holiness and the presence of the Lord. The holiness and the grace of the Lord, which allows his presence to be with us. Is he self-forgetful? Michael, his wife, does not have a great showing here. In verse 21, she says, And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Listen, who chose me above your father and above all his house to anoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord? And I will celebrate before the Lord. Michael was like, You're embarrassing. Are you not aware of what you look like? And David said, No. I'm not. I am so taken. My eyes aren't on what people are thinking. I'm not going to do the, the, the monarchy thing where I'm going to take a step back and be like separate and better and, and keep my rank. No, no, he's in there mixing it up with the people. He's dancing around with everybody else. He's saying, in, at the foot of the cross, in the presence of the Lord, like we're all the same. No kings here. There is one king. David gives himself with abandon. And so, no, he's like, no, I'm not embarrassed. Now, and I will, <laughs> I love this. He like doubles down. I'll be even more undignified in your eyes. But then he turns and he says, you know what's interesting, though? Is that in the eyes of the servants that you're so worried about how I'm going to come across, like they're actually going to hold me in honor. One, because you can't fake that. And that's counter to what anyone would do. No kings do this. David did this. Because he had sight, he had seen, he has now known, he has come with repentant, humble heart, and he is now jubilant because he holds both the reality of the holiness of God and the reality of his grace in one hand. And that is where true worship comes from. Loved ones, if, you're, if you find yourself coming on a Sunday morning or, or listening to worship music and you're like, I'm just not there, I just don't know what's going on, I feel kind of flat, I mean, what's, what's the big deal, I'm just kind of singing some songs like... I have good news for you. This is the pathway to worship. It's the same one every time. You've got to come forth and go, like, I, I bring nothing 
This is not a meritocracy. I come with nothing. Like, you are, you are so separate from me. You are so holy. There is nothing I could ever do. One of my favorite movies is the, 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 the movie Hitch. You guys know the movie Hitch with the, the, uh, Will Smith? And there's this ridiculous scene, but I think it's, it really helps me, so maybe it'll help you. There's a scene where he's trying to teach his, like, his little pupil, James, whatever his name is, uh, about kissing, right? It's the last day, and he's going to teach him about how, you, how, do you, how do you have the kiss with the girl on the last at the end of the night, he's like pretending to be the girl and everything. And he says, you go 90% and you let her come the last 10. You don't go in and just kiss. No, no, no. You go 90% and you, and you wait there and you allow her to respond by coming the last 10. That's all kind of smooth and whatever, but here's the thing. Like God goes the 100%. Like I think so many of us think like, okay, well, God's come a bit. And so he's waiting for me to, no. Like, you don't have anything. You don't have 10%. You have nothing. He has 100%. That leads you to worship. Because you can't get there. But he came the 100%. You see? Do you see? Like, he made a way. Out of love for you. Out of love for me. Like, he made a way. He came all the way. And so there's the, the desire to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be somebody by, by making myself somebody. It falls, the gospel makes that erode, it disappears, it falls like sand through our fingers. And the reality that, that what makes me special, what's going to make me lovable, is actually what is broken in me. Or the things that make me special are the things that are true about me. One of the things, well, there's a scene in, the, in that movie, and I hope I'm not ruining a, a kid's movie for you, but in, in Ugly Dolls where... They're singing this song, and they're, they're looking in the mirror and, and trying to find the light in themselves. Like, I'm awesome. And it's like a self-talk. It's like, you know, because, I, because I'm good enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. I mean, it's the same. It's like not new. It's, and it's just flat. It's like, I can look in the mirror, and I can love me by looking at me. Like, that is, that never works. And it's working less now than it ever has. Like, suicide's all-time high right now. 18 to 25, you know, the people that are, like, coming out of... Like, it's suicide. Why? Because there's hopelessness. Because there's no sense of life and value. Because they're not loved and accepted. Because you're looking at you to be loved and accepted. It will never work. You have to look at another. There has to be the beauty of another. Who is holy, and you shouldn't be able to be with him, but he wants to be with you. His presence is with his people. Do you see how beautiful the gospel is? See how it, how it undoes both of those worldviews? It has no, they have no power. They can't hold up. The gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation of holiness and of grace. And it makes us worshipers. So if you're struggling to worship, maybe you need to fall on your knees. Maybe you're coming to God going like, hey, I've been uh, singing and dancing around. So you're good with me, right? Or maybe you're coming to him like, I've been giving this, or I've been a part of some really good, I've been, I've been kind to my kids, I've yelled lately. And you're, you're trying to make an offering to the Lord of you instead of receiving the reality of the magnitude of the fact that your offering is nothing. And it must only be in a response. See, there's an order to the gospel. We've talked about this before. There's an order to the gospel. That God moves in grace towards us who could never move towards him. And because he has done so, we can now move towards him in gratitude and delight, which is what we see David doing. He's dancing around self-forgetful because he's thinking about God and not himself, because he doesn't have to anymore. 
If you're thinking about your merit or about your brokenness, you're still thinking about you, and it will never take you home. It will never bring you life. To the degree in which the gospel saturates our life, to the degree in which the beauty of Jesus, loved ones, we have a true and better ark. Like the, the, the veil split, right? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil split, and the Holy of Holy was made access. The ark is, if it was even in there, which most people think it wasn't, it, it, was, it doesn't matter. The presence of the Lord had come, and in Jesus Christ, the access to him, the access to the Father was granted. And we have a true and better Uzzah, one who reached over and had every right to be able to touch and be in the presence of the Lord because of his record, because of his merit. And instead, he got the death blow that we deserved. You see, we have, we have a good Savior King who wants to point out and bring to you the reality of how holy he is and how gracious he is. And it's precisely what this table reminds us of. You ever wonder why the center of the Christian faith, the, the recurring rhythm of the Christian faith is a, a cup and, a, a, and bread, a, a brokenness, a, a dying moment? It's because it's an invitation to say, this is what it required. You were this hopeless, and you were this loved. That's why this is a powerful meal every time. And so as you take it, as you, and maybe in your heart, dance a little, that this is the reality for you if you know Jesus. And if you don't know him, this is the moment to be able to say, yeah, I've been trying real hard in my own way, other people's ways, and I long for you to have done it for me, to do it for me. So I'm going to claim his record. I'm going to claim the record of Jesus, not my own. That's the invitation of this table. That's the good news of Advent, by the way, is that he came to do just this. Let's pray. Father.